bigger. Well, thank you all very much for coming. Um, my name is Georgia. I am the treasurer of the Law and Society Honor Society. Um, I will introduce our other board members. So there is Caitlin Viola. She's our president. Leslie Durant is, is our student mentor. Meredith Stitt is our vice president. And Dylan Berry, who isn't here at the moment, is our clerk. Um, and without further ado, Corinne, thank you for being here. We really appreciate it. Um, and the floor is yours. Well, thank you so much. It's nice to see you again, Georgia. It's always a pleasure. So um, my name is Corinne Goodwin. I'm an out loud and proud uh, person of transgender experience. My programs are she and her, although I'm also very comfortable with using they and them pronouns as well. Today, we're gonna to talk about trans rights and the current push on anti-trans legislation and what that's really all about. Um, but before we do that, I wanna talk just a, a little bit about um, my organization, Eastern Pennsylvania Trans Equity Project, what our mission is, what we do, because uh, we're always looking for donations. We're always looking for people to support us. So our mission is to empower transgender people to build community and to promote social justice uh, around issues affecting gender expansive folk. Um, we currently support 10 counties across Eastern Pennsylvania. So that starts with Montgomery, Bucks, Berks, Lehigh, Northampton, Carbon, Schuylkill, Monroe, Lackawanna, and Luzerne. But unofficially, we actually support everything excluding the city of Philadelphia, and I'll be happy to talk about that, uh, from the uh, Delaware River over to the Susquehanna River. And we will be officially launching all those remaining counties probably by the end of Q1 of next year. Um, but within that 10 county area, um, covers about 30% of the population of the state, it's 3 million people. Um, and in that area, um, there are about 60,000 people of transgender experience. Our programming uh, covers really kind of four different swim lanes. So supportive services and mentoring, we actually run six different peer-led support groups for transgender folk, as well as their family members, as well as mentoring programs for people who are in transition. We do a lot of work in our local communities around advocacy. So this includes community events uh, like the Transgender Day of Remembrance, which is actually coming up uh, towards the end of November this year, but also, for example, meeting with legislators and others who influence uh, our ability to uh, live openly and live proudly. We also do a lot of education programming. So that includes education programs for people of trans experience, but also for medical organizations, schools, corporations, governments, businesses. Uh, matter of fact, uh, last week I was spent uh, about uh, three hours with emergency room physicians doing grand rounds at uh, a local hospital to try to improve healthcare outcomes for transgender folk. And then really a, a big part of our organization is our empowerment grants and scholarship programs. So for example, uh, we've helped over 150 people complete their legal name changes this year, which is very important. If you think about if you look like a Jane, but your, your driver's license says Joe, 
Uh, how do you go through airport security without being outed? How do you buy a cell phone? How do you rent an apartment or apply for a job? So these are things that really hold trans folk back from uh, really reaching, you know, what you know, we kind of euphemistically might call the American dream. We also help people with transition garments, housing assistance, food assistance, and for those who might be transgender experienced folks uh, on campus at Thomas Jefferson, we also this past year provided college scholarships to four people with transgender experience. So our goal really, if you think about it, is what is that one thing that we can provide to a person of trans experience to help them get their life on track so that they can overcome a lot of the issues of stigma uh, that uh, attack folks of trans experience. So with that, my infomercial is now over and we're gonna talk about uh, what the real topic is today. So we're gonna do a little bit of trans 101 and kind of just talk about kind of what is the current state for trans folk in the United States and in Pennsylvania. Then we're gonna jump into and move ahead a little bit about the whys and the what's around uh, the current spate of uh, anti-transgender legislation that's coming uh, to the fore across the nation. And then we're gonna talk a little bit about the facts and how to fight back against some of these things uh, because I am an advocate, so I have to get my advocate hat on at some point here today. So let's start off just a little bit with kind of some trans 101. And I mentioned that there are over 60,000 people of transgender experience uh, in our 10 county service area. If you added Philadelphia to that mix, you would almost double that number. Um, the low estimate is uh, one in every 162 people in the United States of America uh, identifies as transgender. Uh, these are people that have been publicly willing to raise their hand and say, yes, I'm a trans woman, a trans man, a non-binary individual. Uh, that number comes from the Williams Institute at UCLA. Um, the mid-estimate actually comes from the CDC. It's actually Donald Trump's CDC published this study um, where for younger people um, underneath the, under the age of 21, 2% uh, of younger folks identify as trans or gender expansive. And then the University of Minnesota published a study about two and a half years ago now uh, where they actually surveyed every high school student in the state of Minnesota and three out of 10 raised their hand as being a person of gen uh, gender expansive experience. And I know George has heard me make this comparison before, but you know, when I go and speak to large audiences of you know, a thousand people or 500 people, one of the questions that I ask is, how many of you know somebody who has red hair, which always makes Georgia smile a little bit? but, and puts her on the spot, but almost everybody in those audiences will raise their hand. And then when I ask the question, how many of you know somebody who's transgender, almost all of those hands will drop. Uh, statistically across the United States, 16% of people say that they know work with uh, somebody who is transgender. But the fact of the matter is that about 2% of the US population has red hair and 2% of the US population is transgender. So if you know somebody who has red hair, you know somebody who's trans, they just may not be out to you yet. And there's lots of reasons for that. 
Another way to look at it is if you go down the Schuylkill Expressway in Philadelphia and you see a Subaru go by, Subaru's, Subaru has about a 2% market share in the United States. So every time you see a Subaru go by, just sort of mentally go like, wow, there goes another trans person. There goes another trans person. There goes another trans person. We are everywhere, but we often sort of fly under the radar. Um, so who are trans folk? Well, we run, like I said, six different support groups. We support over a thousand people in those support groups. And we have people from every walk of life, doctors, lawyers, business folks like myself, mechanics, welders, soldiers. Uh, a very good friend of mine is the highest ranking uh, out person of trans experience in the military. Uh, they are literally a rocket scientist who designs satellites for the military, um, you know, computer programmers and so on. But, you know, one of the things that's really important is to remember that you know, we're also people's moms and dads, we're aunts and uncles, and of course, we're grandparents. Another thing to remember is that, whoops, we are also kids. Um, and matter of fact, I was just uh, talking to people from the Gender Cool Project, which is a group of young trans folk who um, advocate on behalf of trans folk. Um, and the person in the lower right-hand corner here is one of those act young activists they are now about 12 years old. But, you know, kids more and more and more are raising their hands and saying that they're transgender folk and we need to support these young people. We're also your elders. And as a person, I actually, I'm, well, I know I look like I'm 35. I'm actually 62 at the end of this month. And, um, you know, one of my concerns is, is what happens when I have to go into a nursing home at some point when I'm older and how am I treated, frankly, as a woman who owns a penis? I'll be quite that blunt. And how, do, how, how are trans folk treated in these sort of institutionalized settings as they get older? How, do our, how are our healthcare needs addressed when we get older? So we need to understand that trans folk, frankly, look like everybody else in our society. What are the things we want? We want what everybody else wants. We want to live. We want to learn. We want to get all the skills we need from universities like Thomas Jefferson so that we can succeed in life, get a great job buy a lot of stuff, because that's sort of the American way, right? Um, then, you know, we want to be able to worship and be healthy um, and ultimately be safe and respected. But we face obstacles. And if you're a Star Wars fan like I am, you know, Yoda actually is a great philosopher, right? He said, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. And that is exactly what happens to the transgender community. Um, people don't understand us, and because they don't understand us, they are afraid of us, and that leads to prejudice, and frankly, to significant social and political impacts. And while I'm not going to go into all of the details, I wanna share a few of those with you, because it sets the stage for the discussion around what is going on with legislation right now. So first thing you should know, <clears throat> excuse me, is that gender diverse people like myself can be denied housing and public accommodation 
in 31 states across this country, and that includes the state of Pennsylvania. So there is no law on the books in the state of Pennsylvania that um, prohibits discrimination against transgender people. So there are some cities and towns and actually two counties in the, uh, Pennsylvania that do have laws, local ordinances and laws on the books that uh, ban discrimination. So Philadelphia County, for example, has an ordinance on the book. Um, up here in the Lehigh Valley, Allentown has an anti-discrimination law on the books. But where I live in Whitehall Township, which is literally I'm about a half a mile from the Allentown city line, there are no protections for somebody like me. So a landlord could deny me housing, I could be denied a mortgage, I could be denied service in a store or a restaurant. And uh, according to state law, I really have no legal recourse. Some other things you need to know. 57% of all people of trans experience have been rejected by a family member or family members. That includes myself. And especially if you're a younger person, you're living with your parents, um, you're living in an extended family situation, that often leads to homelessness. Almost 30%, three out of every 10 people of trans experience have uh, been on the street at one point or another. Um, I'm currently working right now with three people who are living on the street trying to secure them housing as an example. Um, and it's unfortunate that most um, homeless shelters will not accept a person of transgender experience for lots of reasons. Um, and, you know, right now, you know, with uh, the housing shortage and the crazy amount that people are demanding in rent, um, it is very difficult to find people housing. Um, you know, when you're homeless, um, you're going out there and you're applying for housing, for example, and 21% of us, five out of 10, experience outright housing discrimination. So I come out as transgender and my landlord will evict me or fail to renew my lease for whatever reasons. Um, and, and this is a big one for us, eight out of every 10 transgender people don't have legal identification that matches their gender presentation. So I mentioned earlier, how do you apply for a job with ID that's mismatched? How do you deal with uh, buying a drink in a bar or a restaurant if your ID doesn't match? Often to buy cold medicine or to pick up a prescription at a drugstore, you have to present your driver's license or legal ID. Um, you go to a doctor's office and you have to present legal ID. And when your ID doesn't match, what happens is people avoid getting into these situations. Everything from travel to healthcare to applying for jobs. The number one reason why we have people apply for our assistance in getting a legal name change is because they say they cannot apply for a job until their ID matches. It's no wonder when you kind of combine all these things, right? So you've been rejected by family. You're living out on the street. You can't find a place to live. Your ID doesn't match. 
the unemployment rate for transgender people is three times the national average. Um, if you're a transgender person of color, that number goes up to, frankly, four or five times the national average. So if right now unemployment's running at like 6%, that means for transgender women of color, it's running at 25 to 30% right now. And then even when we do get jobs, we experience significant levels of discrimination on the job. That could be outright termination if you transition on the job. It can be denial of promotion. It can be harassment, both physical and mental and emotional. It's not a pretty picture. And we can talk about all the other places where there's challenges for trans folk and things like healthcare and in education and all these other kind of institutional challenges. I'm not gonna go real deep, but you know, the ultimate uh, impact of all this is that 29% of all people of transgender experience um, live below the national poverty line. Um, if you're a person of, uh, if you're black, the poverty level is 38%. If you're an indigenous person, it's 41. If you're Latinx, it's 43%. And more than one out of every four transgender people go to bed hungry every night. We encounter a lot of challenges. Another challenge, and this is sort of one that you know, has been top of mind for many people, is using public restrooms. 57% of all transgender people uh, will do everything in their power to avoid going to a public restroom. This includes myself, and I am a privileged, white, employed, insured, reasonably affluent transgender woman. Um, and I will do everything in my power to avoid going to a public restroom. And that has nothing to do with the laws that have been passed or that are uh, being proposed in legislatures. Um, it has absolutely nothing to do with that. What it has to do with is the fact that I am twice as likely to be assaulted physically as any other minority group in the nation. Um, LGBTQ people, this is in general, um, are twice as likely to be physically assaulted as uh, Muslims. We're four times as likely to be assaulted as people who are Jewish, and we're 14 times more likely to be assaulted as people who are Latinx. And of those hate crimes, 67% of them are perpetrated against transgender women of color. The reason we don't go to the bathroom is because if we go to the bathroom at our local Walmart or a local restaurant and we are clocked and called out as being a man in a ladies room, we are very likely to be physically assaulted. Another really important fact is that 16% of all transgender people have had to work in the underground economy. So that means you're either working in the sex trade or the drug trade. And we need to look at the reasons for that. Well, the reasons are if you're on the street and you're hungry and you need to put food in your belly and a roof over your head, you're gonna do what you need to do in order to eat and be safe. Unfortunately, the police know this. 
and they regularly harass transgender people. Matter of fact, there are laws on the books. They're euphemistically called walking while trans. Um, New York City just uh, pulled their law, their walking while trans law here just a couple months ago. But you know, 51% of us have been harassed by the police. And I'll give you a great example. Locally here where I live, a friend of mine was assaulted by their Uber driver. And when they, they called the police, the police blamed the trans woman for, for trying to um, solicit the, cat, the Uber driver. They tried to arrest the person who was assaulted, not the person who perpetrated the crime. It's no wonder that 57% of us don't trust the police. I've personally been harassed by police walking down the street. And the result of all that is, is that trans people are twice as likely to be incarcerated as any other minority group. And 47%, half of all black trans folk have been incarcerated at some point. So I'm just talking about this stuff to really sort of lay some groundwork about the trans experience, right? And again, you know, I could talk about the disparities in education, the disparities in healthcare, uh, the disparities in other segments of our society. But the net result of this is, is that 41%, four out of every 10 people of trans experience have not just thought about taking their lives, they've actually made an attempt to take their lives. I was speaking to a therapist yesterday who was working with a person of trans experience. They were looking for resources and um, they're working with a trans youth who's attempted to take their life 10 times. Luckily, they're really bad at it. But the bottom line is, is that 41%, 10 times more than the national average of trans people try to take their lives. So why is it that when you take a look at the stigma and the challenges that this group of people faces, that in this year alone, just in the first nine and a half months of this year, 175 anti-trans bills have been brought forth in state and um, the US legislatures. And over 18 of them have passed. 53 of them target healthcare, 86 target athletics, 21 of them uh, target us through religious liberty reasons, saying that uh, people can deny us service or other uh, programs based on our trans identity. Why would politicians choose to target an already vulnerable population? Anybody have any thoughts on that? You can either share verbally or you can share in the chat. It's easy. Um, Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you, you first, Professor Lane. <laughs> It's an easy target. You go after powerless people. Okay, great. We're, yep, somebody in the chat mentioned we're scapegoats. Good. Caitlin, I think you had something you wanted to say. I was actually going to say almost exactly what Professor Lane said. I would say that it would just be exactly because of, of the vulnerability. I think we've seen that with a lot of vulnerable groups, but particularly I think trans groups are unique in that sometimes they get missed in even like LGBTQ activist conversations. 
Um, I mean, I just watched a video in my public speaking class the other day about gender equality and someone that had been trans mentioned that what they noticed about the video was that trans, like non-binary people were not mentioned once. Like it was, and it was all just like referring to like the gender that they received at birth. Like it was, it was from 2015, but I think this, things like that still happen to this day. Yeah, I mean, there's without a doubt that, you know, um, non-binary folks are not mentioned as much as people that sort of live within the binary, uh, trans folk that live within the binary, and there's probably, frankly, more people who identify non-binary than who identify within the binary. And something that's not talked enough about. So yeah, so being scapegoats were an easy target. These are things that we hear all the time. And I'm not gonna say they're not true, but I'm gonna to try to expand your minds here just a little bit on this topic. The answer is, is that Republicans in particular, people on the far right are targeting trans people because it activates the political base for fundraising. And specifically, it activates moderates and even liberals to cross the political line and vote for conservative candidates based on this specific issue. We're gonna talk about that. So remember, just keep this in mind as we kind of go ahead. It's about crossover voting and frankly, it's about fundraising. So we're kind of do a little bit of a history lesson here. In 2015, the Oberfell uh, versus Hodges ruling came down. Um, it recognized that uh, you know, gay marriage or marriage between uh, same-sex couples is effectively equal to uh, the marriages of opposite-sex couples with all of the accompanying rights and responsibilities, right? So uh, my spouse and I, my wife is a, is a cisgender woman, you know, I can go in and go to the hospital and visit her in the hospital. I can be put on, on her uh, medical directives. I can uh, be uh, deal with her as an executor of her will, um, all the issues with health insurance and life insurance and all those things were opened up to people like myself and my spouse um, with Oberfell. And there was just these huge parties, you know, some of you may even remember it, right? You know, they lit up the White House in rainbow colors and everybody was uh, celebrating and having fun. And we're going like, we won, we won, we won, we won, right? And LGBTQ organizations like the Human Rights Campaign and GLAAD and, you know, all these other organizations were going like, yeah, we got it across the line. Well, what happens when you get across the line and you're running a race? you slow down, you start taking a breath, and frankly, you might lose sight of the bigger picture. So it's easy for LGBTQ folks to say that they won, but really it's probably the L, the G, and maybe the B folks won, but there wasn't a whole lot in Oberfell for uh, trans folk in all frankness. So that same year, uh, in Houston, uh, the um, city council decided that, and by the way, this is kind of what has happened in the um, uh, LGBTQ rights um, uh, movement, is that we started focusing less on national and statewide issues and more and more on local issues, which is not a bad thing. Um, so 
the city council decided to adopt a new equal rights ordinance that, um, you know, it covered all sort of the usual suspects of race, color, ethnicity, national origin, but it specifically added sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and it applied to, you know, businesses that serve the public. So if you went to a McDonald's, you know, you couldn't discriminate based on sexual orientation or gender identity, you know, private employers in Houston. So, you know, all the oil companies that are based down there, um, the city in terms of employment and contractors would hold all of uh, uh, them accountable. And as is the case with almost every uh, ordinance of this type of nature, religious institutions would be exempted. So, you know, the local parochial school would not have to implement uh, this ordinance or a local church would not have to implement this ordinance. A local synagogue wouldn't have to introduce, uh, uh, be, um, um, have, to, have to work with this ordinance, they'd be exempted. The Houston City Council passed the ordinance with a vote of 11 to six and polling showed that over 70% of all voters supported this ordinance, right? Big win, big win, right? Because Houston is the, now I think it's actually the fourth largest city in the country and it's uh, vying for number three in terms of population. So a big win for the LGBTQ community. Unfortunately, um, the adversaries weren't satisfied and they got enough signatures on petitions to put it up for a referendum. And frankly, we, so Equality Texas and HRC and GLAD and all the other organizations that support LGBTQ rights would go like, oh, we're gonna win this referendum hands down. 70% of all people support this referendum. And matter of fact, that number actually pretty much holds true across the entire country. If you say to people in Pennsylvania or New Jersey, you know, hey, do you support you know, non-discrimination against transgender people? Just about everybody says, yeah, no, you shouldn't discriminate against trans people, um, but some people do. And, um, you know, one of the things I always like to say is that, you know, there's more good people than bad people in this world. It's unfortunate that the bad people make a lot more noise, right? And they're better organized. But what ended up happening is about three weeks to go in this election, in this uh, referendum, they started running these TV ads. These are actually screenshots from the ads. And they showed these really skeevy looking dudes following little girls into a ladies room. And, you know, the guy opens the stall door and the little girl is scared to death. And all of a sudden, the vote swung and the referendum lost 61 to 39. So within a space of three weeks, just three weeks, support for this bill swung 30% in what I would certainly interpret as a negative, a negative way, right? And so Houston to this day does not have protections for sexual orientation or gender identity, as well as frankly for um, pregnancy um, in their civil rights ordinance. So this really taught some, a lesson to people on the right, frankly, is that man, we think we found a message that works, right? Because 
in order to get a 61% majority, you're starting to convince moderates and even liberals that this is a bad thing, right? And really what it comes down to is people, all people wanna protect young kids, especially young girls. So fast forward. And next year you get in North Carolina, HB2. So this is the, this is the bill that kind of like everybody remembers, right? Um, it's the Public Facilities Privacy and Security Act. And it actually did two things. So the first thing it did is it said that any locality in the state of North Carolina was prohibited from passing a local um, non-discrimination uh, law for uh, specifically around transgender folks, around gender equity. That actually is probably the bigger issue. Um, but the other thing it did, and this is the thing that's sort of inflected with people, is it said that um, any type of school or public facility, so libraries, restaurants, and so on, who had single gender restrooms, so they had a men's room and a ladies room, um, they could not allow people um, like myself, who I was male assigned at birth, into the restroom that they identified with. And man, did the, all it just blew up, right? Um, and you know what ended up happening is, in particular, the transgender community really mobilized, and we started telling our stories. For example, this young guy here is a trans guy, and you would never know he's a trans person, right? Um, but he would have been forced to go into a ladies' room. So this is one of his social media posts, right? Um, so we started turning it around and saying, it's not just about protecting young girls, right? It's also about protecting the little old lady behind here because you don't want that dude in there, right? Um, and there were other posts similar with trans women, um, you know, using urinals in men's rooms, you know, beautiful women, right? What we did is we started telling our stories and humanizing the transgender experience. Here's the problem with that we are twice as likely to be assaulted as any other group in the nation. And coming out and being highly visible is also highly, highly, highly dangerous. So while you might've had a few people who are willing to lay it out on the line, many people were not. But luckily, um, you know, the NCAA, who has been generally supportive of transgender people. They canceled games and tournaments. Um, professional organizations canceled conferences. The federal government canceled conferences. And them and also other states um, said that, you know, their employees were not allowed to travel to North Carolina for any reason whatsoever if the state was going to be paying for it, for example. And the state lost over $600 million in revenue money talks in politics, right? You start affecting people in their pocketbooks. And the result was, is that when the governor ran for re-election, he lost. And the exit polls show that the reason he lost was specifically due to this issue. Now, was it because people started saying that, you know, trans folk are important or was it because money talks? And I think that that's really debatable. 
that's really a debatable piece, right? So is it about doing what's right or is it about doing what's good for our pocketbook? But so the message to people of trans experience and in the LGBTQ community was, is that personalization and humanization works. The other lesson is, is of course, is that it's very dangerous and people were attacked and people were humiliated personally as they were trying to do this work. Move ahead, it's 2019. And in Kentucky, uh, they had a very, very weak uh, Republican candidate for governor um, and a pretty strong Democratic candidate for governor. Um, and they knew they were gonna lose, right? So the people on the right knew they were gonna lose. And so they viewed this race as a place to really start testing messaging. Uh, and one organization, the American Principles Project in particular, really was assertive in testing all kinds of messaging. And the messaging was targeted at how do you regain suburban, moderate, college-educated, and female voters who live in the suburbs. So people who live in the suburbs of Lexington, for example. I'm gonna apologize because there's somebody using a weed eater out behind my house. So if okay. you have that noise, let me know. Um, but you know, these are the voters that the Republican party has been bleeding, right? This is, this is the, these are the voters that got Biden, for example, into office this last uh, uh, cycle, right? So people who live in the suburbs, people who are well-educated, people who sort of straddle the line between Republican and Democrat, moderate people, and in particular, uh, white women voters. And so the American Principles Project said, we need to start testing messaging. And what they found is that the absolute number one talking point that got um, voters to move, even moderates, to vote, say, I'm going to support a conservative candidate was the issue not of restrooms, but of transgender athletes. A close second was the issue of medical treatment for transgender kids. Um, but this number one around athletes what became a real, a real talking point for them. And so what they found is that when they started running ads around this, while they knew that the Democratic candidate, so it's Governor Bashar, was going to win when they started running ads attacking him around the issue of transgender athletes they swung the race by seven percent so before the ads they were going to lose by 16 they ended up losing by nine think about in a close election like the one we just had or and a swing district, for example, I live in a swing district in Pennsylvania 7, or in other localities where there's a close race, 7% gets you where you need to be. So they took this research and they started shopping it around to organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is actually a certified hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Heritage Foundation. Um, and what the uh, Alliance Defending Freedom started doing is they began providing Republican legislators, both in lo local elections and state elections in particular, with um, talking points and even with um, legislative language around these topics. 
So if you look at the bill in Idaho that we're gonna talk about in a few minutes, or uh, HB 972, which is the bill in Pennsylvania, the language is virtually identical. Matter of fact, the bills, the bill's names are identical. That language is coming from the Alliance Defending Freedom. The money to fund this stuff is coming from organizations like the Heritage Foundation. So this is really very much about how do we move these moderate voters? Um, and secondarily, it's also about how do we get them to give money to support the conservative candidates, right? So it's not about transphobia. It's about moving voters. So fast forward to 2020, just a year ago, and we're in the middle of the COVID epidemic. Um, matter of fact, Idaho is still rationing healthcare around COVID. And instead of dealing with a, a health issue that affects everybody like COVID, they decided on the right, uh, on the right, a number of legislators decided to introduce the Fairness in Women's Sports Act. And the Fairness in Women's Sports Act specifically banned transgender girls from participating in school sports ranging from kindergarten all the way through college. By the way, it didn't say anything about transgender boys, just transgender girls. So maybe a little misogyny going on there as well. Um, so they introduced this bill, it passed. And what they tend to claim is they say that these laws are designed to protect women's ability to participate in sports. Um, as guaranteed in Title IX, right? So Title IX says that women should have equal access to educational opportunities as men, and that um, having transgender women participate in sports means that because supposedly trans women are so much more um, capable on the basketball court or the track or the baseball diamond or the whatever, that um, uh, we are taking spots away from cisgender women. Um, and that is forbidden under Title IX. That's the claim. Um, these laws, uh, what they say is that they would allow anybody, anybody in a community. So whether they're an athlete or a parent or just a community member to complain about unfair competition. And immediately that student would be forced uh, to have a physical examination. That examination could start with looking at patient records, which is certainly an invasion of privacy. Um, it could uh, be a physical exam where you know you have to drop your pants and see what people's anatomy is. It could uh, be um, um, ultrasounds, x-rays, or MRIs to determine uh, what people's uh, organs are internally. Um, get doctors involved, hospitals involved, um, and so on. And like I said, there's similar bills, including in Pennsylvania here that have virtually identical language. They've been introduced in 38 states. So um, when you think about that number, you can say that, well, you know, red versus blue. Well, 38 states aren't ultra conservative, right? Some of these states, these bills have no chance of passing in the legislature. Frankly, we think in Pennsylvania here, it doesn't have a chance of passing in the legislature unless something crazy happens. The reason why they are doing it is because it helps them raise money, 
right? It helps them raise money. That'll help them fund conservative candidates, right? And these bills do have some high profile supporters. So Martina Navratilova, the former tennis champion, um, who interestingly is a person of LGBT experience, um, has come out and supported these bills. There's a organization called the Women's Sports Policy Working Group, who's come out and said that they support this type of legislation as well. Um, not a single person of trans experience is on their board, by the way. Um, and I should also say that secondarily, medical bans are gaining traction as well. And we'll talk a little bit about those too. Um, so the ACL has sued and they forestalled uh, this bill from going into effect. Um, and they've been successful in other states where these bills have uh, turned into law and they sue based on right to privacy, right? So this idea of physical examinations in particular uh, violates people's right to privacy. That's how they're winning. So let's, now that we've had the history lesson, let's talk a little bit about the facts. So trans athletes. So of the 16 states that specifically have written policies um, from their, you know, uh, like in um, uh, Pennsylvania, well, Pennsylvania doesn't have, have a specific policy, but for example, Connecticut does. You know, their, their school athletics association says that, you know, trans athletes should be included. And out of the 6.8 million student athletes, 6.8 million student athletes, there have only been four cases where a person of transgender experience has been dominant in whatever their sport of choice is. That is 0.00006%. These laws are targeting a problem that frankly doesn't exist. And I'll say that two of these cases, frankly, are in Connecticut. They involved uh, two students, trans women, who were track athletes. Um, and the uh, people who were suing uh, in Connecticut around this, um, they've actually beaten these transgender athletes half of the time, uh, including in the state championships. Uh, additionally, these two transgender athletes never got college scholarships, but the students who um, uh, also they were competing with have gotten college scholarships. So, you know, it really begins to question where is the damage that's being done supposedly. They talk about that these laws supposedly hurt women, right? That there's unfair competition. Well, there are real repercussions to this. So for example, um, Brittany Griner is a uh, athlete in the WNBA. She's six, I think she's 6'10 or 6'11. She can dunk. Well, is it fair that she is 6'11 and most of the other women in the NBA are like, you know, six feet tall? Um, and can't dunk, well, it'd be very easy to accuse her of being a transgender person and requiring physical examinations for her to prove that she is not a person of trans experience. Um, studies show that 30% of all college level uh, and Olympic level and professional level female athletes have polycystic ovary syndrome, which what it does is it increases levels of testosterone by up to 30% in these women. Um, and so 
if you're a woman who has POS, you know, you could be accused of being a person of trans experience. The school would have to kick you off of the team and then have to investigate you, including your physical examination, testing, medical records, and so on. Additionally, these bills are very vague and they don't necessarily spell out the details about biology or the processes in which these things would go on. Um, and studies also show that in the states that have inclusive policies, the 16 states, they um, actually um, participation amongst cisgender women goes up in terms of athletics. Um, and frankly, if these states and legislators really cared about women's sports and they really cared about Title IX, they would probably do a better job of funding girls' sports. They'd probably train more coaches. Um, and in fact, the Women's Sports Federation, which is considered the best in class organization uh, in this area, they have a 40 point plan um, to improve participation in women's sports and um, transgender exclusion isn't included in any of those points. I wanna talk just briefly about medical bans. Um, so many of these medical bans, for example, one that's been passed in Arkansas, one that's been passed in Tennessee, um, uh, what they would do is they would make transgender medical care illegal uh, for uh, youth. So people under the eight, age of 18, sometimes under the age of 21, um, uh, even though you know, the AMA, the American uh, Academy of Pediatrics, uh, and other organizations show that these um, affirming treatments are actually uh, life-saving. Um, remember that 41% number of people that try to take their own lives. And they would even ban counseling. So you couldn't even take your kid to a therapist to talk about their gender identity beyond you know, the medical treatments of puberty blockers or hormones or even surgeries. Additionally, best practices from the uh, World Professional Association for Transgender Health and the AMA typically say that um, surgeries and hormones should never be given to somebody under the age of 16, which in many states, of course, is the age of majority. And in many of these laws, they actually attack um, parents and providers as abusers, just like you know, the anti-abortion laws that you're hearing about, for example, in Texas right now. And what that does is it has a bigger impact on our society because if you're a doctor who wants to provide affirming care to trans people, you're gonna move out of the state of Alabama, for example, or you're gonna move away from the state of Arkansas. And that impacts the healthcare for everybody in these states. And then finally, I kinda of wanna talk a little bit about these religious exemptions briefly, right? So these are you know, what you know, we call on our side of the, of the aisle here, license to discriminate laws, right? So they say that you know, an organization, a business, a closely held company um, can break the intent of the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause, as well as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 um, around things like healthcare, mental health, pharmacy. Um, so you know, I would not be able, you know, a pharmacist could refuse to uh, fill my prescription, for example, for my uh, estrogen um, because of a religious uh, uh, belief on their part. It also affects things like adoptions and foster care, grant making to organizations. Um, you know, government employees could refuse, for example, a marriage license. There's two states that have laws that say that 
um, that, that a government worker could refuse to uh, provide a marriage license based on a religious uh, belief. So these laws are starting to come out more and more. Again, the reason for these things is about um, funding and getting people to uh, cross the line. So how do we fight back? You know, trans folk, LGBT folk, and even probably more importantly, our allies need to start personalizing these stories. So you've all met me for the first time, but hopefully you'll leave today and you say, wow, you know, I know a transgender woman and she is smart and she is eloquent and she's beautiful. And, you know, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, we're supporting her, right? And especially, you know, we love it when moms and kids talk to politicians because it's really hard to, you know, say rotten things to a kid when they go and meet with a politician. Um, corporations and institutions need to fight back um, and they need to not just say the right things, they need to do the right things like they did in North Carolina and like they are frankly not doing in Texas, which has over 40 laws right now. They just passed one actually this past week um, pending for uh, anti-trans legislation, right? So, you know, money talks. So these organizations often provide grant money, dark money. And then of course our politicians need to grow a backbone. I'll call out uh, one of my local legislators who is on the state education committee, who's um, examining uh, the current sports ban and she refuses to meet with me. And the reason she refuses to meet with me, frankly, is because if she is seen meeting with a person of transgender experience, she will get primaried. Well, there comes a point in time when you have to make a decision between doing what is right and doing what is right for you. So here's what I want you to remember. These bills are not about the sixth you know, 0 .00, I don't even know what that number is, 0.00006% of the population that is a transgender athlete. Um, what it is about is activating crossover and women voters so that they can get funding and elect right-leaning candidates. And I'm not gonna tell you how to vote, but it's important to remember that it's likely that most states, these bills are not going to pass. Um, you can go to the ACLU and they have a tracker on all of this legislation and most of it fails in committee. Um, but what happens when these candidates get money and they get elected, they're going to start talking about and working on their real agenda, which is tax policy, financial and environmental deregulation, abortion rights, gun rights, religious rights, um, anti-union activities, issues around policing, and maybe you support all that stuff, but maybe you don't. And what is happening is that trans folk, because we are a vulnerable population, we are a scapegoat, it's easy to pick on us. They are using us to move their agenda, their larger agenda, uh, forward in state legislatures, local legislative bodies, as well as in Congress. So with that, I am done. Two minutes early, look at that right on time. Um, uh, and uh, we have some resources here you can use, but you know, I'm happy to stay as long as anybody wants about uh, answer questions or take comments or you know, just talk about uh, you know, what a gorgeous fall day it is.
Brent, I'm going to stop recording, but we have questions, I'm sure. <laughs>